Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you and uh, happy Father's Day. I trust, uh, gentlemen, we'll have a legacy that uh, transcends our time, our days, takes us forward. Yeah, just bless you guys, honor you. What a day to celebrate. But also what a day to remember some of the weighty things that uh, we've had a look at already in the service. Some of the prayers, some of the cries, even our president this week, reminding us uh, again of yeah, some of the things that are not proud of, uh, not, we can't be proud of in regard to our maleness, our masculinity, and that is the suffering and loss and death and trauma of women and children at the hands of men. And guys, I just bless you to carry a different spirit, to have a new legacy to leave behind. These are, these are challenging days. And one of the things we can do in that time is say of something like this, as for me and my house, as for me and my house, we're going to serve God. We're going to serve the Lord. We're going to do this thing and we're going to do it right. So gents, dads, those of you who yeah, father others in every way, including in the Lord, let's leave a legacy that, uh, that honors the Lord. So I'm continuing in something of the courageous conversations that, has, uh, that we were introduced to last week. Uh, recognizing stuff that's been going on, um, what PBC has uh, already done. We saw something of the mercy and justice journey, the diversity journey, some of the actions taken by the church and uh, some of the change that's happened both internally, uh, some of the stuff we're doing externally in our leadership and, and more. And, uh, and then the mercy and justice team took us through Tuesday evening something of a, a debrief of what this time has been especially for people of color and then on thursday evening uh, the mercy and justice team took us to acts chapter 10 and 11 and i want to pick up in acts chapter 11 just after the reading they did um, the evening is recorded if you'd like to go and have a look at it and it was really great but it when we get to acts chapter 10 and 11 it's showing us the story of how god opened up the early church to become a genuinely diverse, transcultural, transnational community. And one of the first things that has to happen, and this is like gulp swallow for me, is that the church leader has to be challenged and changed. And so the leader in the church in Jerusalem is Peter. He's traveling, it's always good, as it were, to get out there and be in other spaces. And so he's in Joppa and he's praying. And things begin to shift and you'll have to go and read what God does um, in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. But, you know, this thing comes together and it's phenomenal. Peter's prayer takes him into, we could only describe it as a trance. And in this trance, he has a vision and, and he sees and hears things and experiences things that challenges his deeply preconceived uh, religious and racial prejudices, the stereotypes, the boxes he's lived in. And so he has to struggle with personal, theological, racial, traditional, institutional prejudice 
that he has carried against the Gentiles, um, many of whom were not just from other religions, but also from other race groups. And Jackie, who led Thursday evening, so helpfully showed us um, two definitions of racism. And we often revert to the first in which we think of racism as intentional acts of racial discrimination committed by immoral individuals. In other words, it's we mean, you know, the person meant harm. Um, it's aimed deliberately at someone of a different race. And only bad people do this, and it's all about individual actions. And we were directed away from this definition of intentional harm um, that, that says, I have to admit that I'm a deeply bad person. When, when actually, I know those weren't my intentions. I know that's not what I wanted my actions to convey. And, and I don't feel that, that I have to so like break down my identity uh, to become a good person. When we recognize that racism includes unintentional thoughts, beliefs, ways in which we were conditioned, and these are beliefs and actions that, are, uh, that come from being born and socialized and conditioned, into racist systems. And so then we have to unpack prejudice and, and things that, that are just inculcated into us against other people and groups that, that don't actually have a rational basis, but they are there. And then um, actions that get built on that, we call that discrimination. And then there is the institutional racism, a control exerted uh, through it. And this builds into far-reaching systems that operate almost with a life of their own. Uh, from They exist apart from the intentions, possibly, of people who are trying to not be racist. They find themselves conditioned and acting, acting in ways that they would actually say, no, that's not what I intended. But inside that systemic racism, that's what is going on. And this helped us understand something of Peter's challenge. And I want to go there a little bit deeper today. Peter's probably having to deal with, uh, at that stage, you know, full of the Spirit, meeting with God. He's almost certainly dealing with category two. He's not intending harm. He's just living out everything that, as it were, has been lived into him and put into him. Now, he's walked with Jesus. He knows something's different, but... Hear me, I mean, he's a follower of Jesus. He's, he's on, the, on the good guy's side, but he's still got work to do. And so too with me and so too with all of us. We've been deeply conditioned and it's actually only when we start wrestling with that stuff that we start to see how much work has to be done. And so chapter 10 describes what happens to Peter, then how he goes to Cornelius' household preaches there because Cornelius has had an angelic visitation, words of knowledge are given, and then when he's preaching, the Holy Spirit is poured out just as it happened at Pentecost. Evangelism breaks out, people get saved, filled with the Spirit. I mean, the chapter is just like Pentecost all over again. And so Peter suddenly finds himself there having to answer for something clearly God did, but because it didn't fit inside people's boxes, there's, you know, there's the danger of, of the church misunderstanding, taking offense. And so 
they want to know what's gone down. And so the church in Jerusalem has to be brought on board. And so he tells them how his meeting with Cornelius came about. And then we read Peter's description of what took place in verse 15. And he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he came on us at the beginning, meaning Pentecost. And then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter reasons, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And he realizes this is God at work. And then this, this great verse, so when they heard, they had no further objections about what had happened. Praised God, saying, so then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so apparently the church uh, gets it. Great. It's done. That settles it. We've dealt with, you know, we've dealt with this. Um, they, they sort of like, welcome. We can all move on now. But what they don't realize is how much they're just assuming they're going to assimilate the, the Gentiles, and that the Gentiles are actually just going to have to become good Jews to belong to the church. And because they assume assimilation, instead of the transformation of the church by the nations themselves, still rooted in the gospel, we read that the happily ever after certainly doesn't happen in the book of Acts. This topic, these issues, and deep hurt and pain will recycle many more times over. I mean, it's, you know, the church is great. God's granted them life. The Spirit has come. We're all going to be fine. And it doesn't happen. Not in the New Testament letters. Not in the book of Acts. Not in the Jerusalem church. Not in a whole bunch of other churches. Certainly not in Galatia, which is areas of Asia Minor and so on, across to Greece, across to Corinth. Man, the work is huge. Off to Rome. It's got to be reworked again and again and again. And, and in our example, we read in, in Galatians chapter 2 that, that Peter himself messed this up. And so Paul writes to the Galatian churches and he talks about a time that's going to be referenced in our, our main reading. But he's referencing the same period as Acts chapter 11. And he says, when Cephas, another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived... He began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Notice this, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So into this unified church came a sense of constituencies, came a sense of, well, well, you belong to this group, you belong to that group, you're, you're of Jewish extract, you're of Gentile extract, you're a, a, a Gentile who maybe observes Jewish customs, you're a Jew, as, as, as Peter, uh, Paul challenges Peter, who doesn't even observe Jewish customs. You're living like a Gentile. And so the other Jews joined Peter in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, writes Paul, even Barnabas is led astray. And then Galatians 
And, and when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Wow. Wow. So the gospel itself is, is, is addressing and dealing with this issue. This truth of the gospel, we're going to see this in Acts chapter 11. I'll flag it for you when we get there. This, this gospel unlocks a diversity in and of itself. And this gospel equips a diversity in and of itself. If we want diversity for diversity's sake, we're going to have a long, hard road. But if we allow the gospel to energize and equip our diversity, and we take the tools of the gospel, confession, repentance, forgiveness, releasing uh, in faith both ourselves and others from the penalty and consequence of sin, accepting forgiveness, releasing it, increasing it, and then changing the spirit that, that was operative in that environment. And then walking into meaningful, putting wrongs right and reconciling community, restitution and reconciliation. This gospel, they were, they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter or Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew. Yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How then is it that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And so this question of forcing people to, to leave their custom, assimilate into another environment in which the customs, no, it's not theology, it's custom, tradition. Paul recognizes that the gospel is going to receive people into a space in which certainly the leaders have to change, the church has to change, and the community becomes something completely distinct. And so Paul has to confront Peter, who's reverting to discriminatory behavior when he visited Antioch, and that was happening all at the same time here in Acts chapter 11. Now what's going on for Peter? I mean... Man, he's walked with Jesus. He's been through Pentecost. And I mean, this is a couple of years after Pentecost now. And, and he's now had these profound experiences in prayer, in visions, angelic visitations, powerful outpouring of the Spirit. I mean, it was such a blast to preach to these people who were so excited to tell people what God had done. It was genuine. And yet Peter still had work to do. You see, we need to recognize how personal, how institutional, how social, how cultural, and how theological, but of course it's messed up theology, our prejudices can be. And because this thing goes so deep into our attitudes, our mindsets, our behaviors, our socializing, our, our normalizing in culture and tradition, we have to be so careful that we don't just assume, well, I can tick, tick this box. We all have to live with vulnerability, accountability, humility. We all need people at times who say to us, and we've got to be able to accept it. Hey, what's this? What's this? How can you do this? 
precisely because racism and other forms of discrimination are so deeply and often unconsciously conditioned into us. So there's Peter, there's this church Jerusalem that apparently gets it, but sends people to Galatia and I mean to Antioch and messes it up for them. Nevertheless, <laughs> these guys keep going, these guys keep going. So we read in verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed had traveled as far as Phoenicia, that's on the Mediterranean coast um, near Palestine, and then Cyprus, that's an island just between Turkey and across to Syria, and, uh, and Antioch, which is right up in the corner. And then spreading the word, though, among, only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus, which is... Uh, North Africa, in the middle of North Africa, maybe, yeah, certainly much further to the west would be in modern-day Li Libya, and uh, not Cyprus, Cyprus is the island, Cyrene is in the uh, North uh, African coast, and they went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. They began to speak to Greeks also, notice this, flagging it now, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The gospel just began to break out and the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem and so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. We, we, we've seen him, met him several times already in the book. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And during this time, some of the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Um, and in Acts, Luke diplomatically doesn't talk about the incident of separating the church. However, something else is recorded in Acts. They both just happen. One tells of this story, the other tells of that story. One of these prophets named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And this, in fact, then happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders in Jerusalem by Barnabas and Saul. So here we see that the gospel bursts its religious, its cultural, and its racial banks. It's as it were, the gospel's been flowing inside this this. Um, religious bank of Judaism. Although it's new, although it's different, it's now flowing inside the, the, the Jewish, as it were, nation, Jewish people. They are dispersed across the world. So even though the gospel is spreading, it's primarily still spreading amongst the Jews. Yes, it's gone to Cornelius, but we don't read of this spontaneous uh, explosion. But now it starts crossing religious, cultural, and racial boundaries. It's bursting its banks. And the flow 
out of Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria is now all across the Mediterranean. And something significant and prophetic happens in Antioch. The believers begin to speak to Greeks about the good news, the gospel, the Lord Jesus. And tons of the Greeks, the Gentiles, get saved. So what do we have in Acts chapter 11? Well, the leader is changed. Well, sort of. He's still got work to do. The Jerusalem church gets on board with the change. Well, sort of. They still mess Antioch around. They still carry their prejudices wherever they go. And listen, this is the mother church. These are good guys. They just hadn't thought through all the stuff. The leader gets changed. Well, sort of. He's still got work to do. The church gets changed. Well, sort of. It's still got work to do. And then the gospel starts bursting its demographic banks and we find a church that is expressing genuine diversity now across all the boundaries. And that church is actually, as it were, the relaunch of the book of Acts and this time from a Gentile Roman base in a massive city of the time, big in the Roman Empire, huge on the intersection of the trade routes between north and south, east and west, ocean and land, the city of Antioch. Now, the gospel starts getting a response. How's the church going to respond? First of all, they recognize it needs a leadership response. And so Barnabas gets sent by the Jerusalem church to discern and direct the response. Uh, Barnabas was well positioned. He is his, his, um, his the uncle to John Mark, whose mom owned the house that was probably the upper room. And, and so he's well connected and he's, since Acts chapter 5, been a big giver inside the church. He's probably a businessman from Cyprus with connections and family in Jerusalem. And, uh, and so you know, he's a great connecting point. Cyprus is not far from Antioch. It's an island in the Mediterranean really nearby. And so he's a great link to what's going on. And, and we read he's a good guy and he's full of the spirit. And so they, they initiate a leader response. But, but then what he does is he intentionally builds a team. And he starts to build a multiracial and multicultural leadership team. And I'm pretty certain this was deliberate. And the reason we get told where these guys come from, one from West Africa, one from North Africa, one was deeply Jewish but had belonged to the wrong group of Jews, namely the Herodians. And then there was Barnabas and Saul. So his first recruiter, Saul, he heads over to Tarsus, and they use their leadership gifts to teach and to train the church. Now, interesting, they have to get a new name. They become a new single brand. Before this, these people would have identified either as Jewish disciples or Jews or Gentile proselytes. People who interested in the faith of the scriptures would have been regarded as proselytes. And they had names, but they were still distinct. They were not one entity. They might have claimed to worship one God, but, but they were certainly not one people. They were not one church. Up until this time, there were boxes and labels that described them. But as something genuinely new started happening in Antioch, they needed a new name. <laughs> 
the old categories just don't describe them anymore because they have a new identity. And so they get called, this new common expression gets called the Christ ones. The little Christs, the, the, the ones who want to be like Christ, the ones who follow Jesus the Messiah. They continue to network with other churches and, and especially Jerusalem, which is, which is a thing of courage because, so number four, they, this is point number four, and, and why did this take courage? Because Jerusalem was different to them. And, and Jerusalem was, as we saw in Galatians chapter 2, actually a little bit problematic for them. Jerusalem didn't fully get what, what God was doing in Antioch, and so they brought their old stuff into, you know, as it were, their old wine. Now, you know, a couple of years, and of course they know Pentecost, and they know Jesus, and they can prophesy, and they can prophesy accurately, but they haven't dealt with all their stuff. Barnabas takes the risk and Saul, Paul, take the risk. But they also have to have courage because sometimes when this is going down, they have to speak up and say, no, that's not right. This is the way. This is what it looks like. But we can see that there was lots of ministry interaction between them. And what this produces is a gospel, number five, that is taught and lived holistically. The people are taught about this gospel and the new kind of community that it produces. And it's a very holistic community. And so like the Jerusalem church that we saw in Acts 2 and Acts chapter 5, they demonstrate the power of the gospel through sacrificial solidarity, through compassionate generosity, deep concern for the suffering of others. And in this case, those far away and different to them. And so they respond, and I mean, this is, this is faith, but it's, it's all over the book of Acts. They respond with a prophetic pre-action to an enormous economic and public health threat. Sounds a little bit familiar to our time. Massive economic dislocation and a threat to public health and, and human survival. The threat in this case wasn't a pandemic. It was a famine. And the church is equipped prophetically to prepare a response to build a response before the crisis of the famine even hits and so they begin to take up an offering trusting the prophetic word for the sake of people from another place who've actually part of some of the complexities they've had to face the complexities aren't shared in Acts 11 but we know they're there from Galatians 2 now what can we take away let me start with this last point. And I'm going to have to come back. There's so much in here. I'm, I'm going to come back next week. And in particular next week, talk to some of the hot button issues that this speaks to our context today. But one of the things as a church that we can learn is the prophetic pre-action. You know, when we get news, distressing news, news that breaks into the world, news that dominates the headlines, news that takes over, whether it's a pandemic or famine or, or deep racism or war or whatever it is, there is tremendous pressure on us to react, especially demanding and distressing news. And it's like this thing comes at us. Now, 
That's the interesting thing, that when we walk in the kingdom of Jesus and of the God who knows beginning from the end, even though we don't know the detail, now sometimes we do, I mean, they got actually a prophetic heads up as to what was coming in detail, a famine is going to come. But if, if we will walk in kingdom life, we will find that we get prepared for things we don't even see, simply because we are making sure that the life that we live and the, and the context we're in is one that is connected and healthy and accountable. And, and, and so following Jesus enables us to live a life of prophetic pre-action rather than reaction, in which we can actually show the world the way forward. As we saw in our study of John's revelation, the church is to be a prophetic demonstration of the future in the present. And so what the church will be in a place where there is no sickness or tears or uh, or suffering or death. We, we get to be a picture, not because we're immune or exempt from suffering, but we show the world what the world can become if it will follow the Lord. And so in one sense, we should be the news before it happens. People should be able to look at the church and go, this is how I prepare to live well. Now, now talking about the news, and I we need to recognize that the news we get fed is a political instrument as well as an industry. And, and so there is an eventness to the news, but there's also the interpretation. And there is the action that those editors and reporters and, and, and that kind of thing want you to take. And one of the things they just want us to do is to click again. And again and again to to buy another analysis and to get more information you see it's an industry it, it is an industry and and so there's not a conspiracy theory it's just true the news industry knows that people will consume more news when they are angry when they are afraid and they are uncertain why because in that state of being angry and afraid they are desperate to hear good news and they are willing to do something to change the news. You know, most of us don't keep reading a book once we get to the line and they lived happily ever after. The news never wants us to get to that place of peace, of closure, of okay, I can rest now. Now, of course, the world has always got stuff that's going on and none of us are going to be escapist. But at the same time, we need to realize that the news is prodding you for a reaction. What the Holy Spirit wants to do is give you a prophetic pre-action. So that when something happens, Jesus told his disciples this often. He said, when you stand before kings, this is what's going to happen. When the suffering comes, da 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 da. When, when you see these signs, this is what you can do. And, and so we get equipped as it were, beforehand. Now, as a church and as leaders, we realize that when the news comes, we're actually being acted upon as much as you. We, we're in this with you. And, and sometimes there's a demand to react, especially to something that's painful or distressing. And you know, sometimes we've just got to pause. 
and, and deliberately be slower to react to news that's feeding off anger or fear or shame, distrust, alienation, sense of bitterness. One of the things we know when that kind of news comes is we can't, I mean we can't, we can't compete with the volume. And, and by what I mean by that is the decibels, literally the noise and distress it creates, and also the volume, as in the sheer quantity that this industry can churn out. And actually, I mean, of course we need to work out when and how to comment, and if we've got that wrong, like Peter, I've got to go, I need to be vulnerable, I need to be open, I need to say, if you wanted me to speak sooner or more, but one of the things I don't want to do is bring into our fellowship and our communion and our connection with one another the fear and the anger and the distrust and, and impose it into our space because that's their story. I want to look at the facts. I want to look at the events. But I want to maintain a different spirit. Why? Because we want to maintain and cultivate a different spirit. You see, we will need to communicate. We will need to speak. Make no mistake. But what will distinguish our communication from that noise and quantity? We, we cannot hope to compete with the intensity, the decibels and the quantity that is coming out. What must distinguish our communication is its depth, is its quality, and is its integrity. When, when people hear what we have to say, they need to be able to trust that. And that's not just between us. When the world listens to the church, and this is going to be a challenge for us next week, because the world has listened to the church, and they can't trust what we say. They can't look at us and see a demonstration as, as that early Roman Empire could look at the church of Antioch and say, Oh, this is the way. This is how a new world can be born. We as a church need to be a prophetic pre-action. Pre-action. Not a reaction. So easy to react. Normally when we react, people get hurt. So one of the things that helps us discern how to respond is not just to ask how are people reacting, but how is PBC pre-acting before George Floyd died? So brutally murdered as much by an institution as by a policeman. How will we pre-acting and that can both be sobering but also encouraging one of the things the mercy and justice team did for us last week was to show us as it were some of the things that have gone before we're not jumping up to react because by the grace of god there have been many things that are part of a pre-action you see when god is present the church is often working on challenges before they arise the other thing is we need to find leaders who will teach and equip us. 
Notice this is a diverse church, but now they've got many Gentile converts. So Barnabas deliberately goes and finds a Jewish teacher, but who's grown up in a Gentile world. Someone who's going to be able to bridge the Jew-Gentile divide, who's a rabbi trained in school deeply in Jewish traditions, but, but who was born a Roman citizen and besides lives quite nearby. I mean, probably 30, 40 k's away. He's not a complete stranger, but he is deeply different to him, uh, to them. And so they're going to have to learn from this man who, who fits this description. Now, I find it really interesting because, um, you know, in our context, we're choosing leaders and learning from leaders. And, and you know, last week, um, Bevan yeah, freaked most of us out. You know, you know it, it, was a, it was a courageous thing to do. And he named problematic differences and showed us some of the things that need fixing. Now, now some of us felt at the time that he was to use the imagery from a leaky pirate ship after a battle. You know, after the battle, they'd make their enemies walk the plank. And I think some of us felt like Bevan was, you know, prodding us from behind and making us walk the plank into the ocean. I, I, I want to say to you and, and, and promise you that if you understood something of Bevan's circumstance, you would know that it was he himself who was walking the plank on our behalf. But one of the things, whichever it may be, is, uh, is, is that our collective response, and it's obviously difficult because we've got to pick it up online and so on, has actually been very encouraging to me. Even if only this, if Bevan marched off the edge of the plank, a bunch of us dived off the ship, even if it was just to think we need to go and rescue, only once we get into the water to discover in our two courageous conversations that have happened during the week, that in Bevan we have someone like Paul who's very different to us and yet understands more about us than maybe we are willing to concede. And once we're in the water, jumped off the ship, he's now teaching us how to swim. And maybe very importantly, how to dive beneath the surface of things. How to find and fix the damage to the ship. And how to use the ship properly. End its associations with piracy. And let's be a different kind of crew. And one of the things Paul did when he walked into the space is he began to show them how the gospel could equip their new community, what the difference the gospel made, and what a different church emerged out of this. So we need to find diverse leaders who will shepherd, teach, and equip us. And then this has been, and I need to wrap up, we need to recognize we're going to keep on working on this thing for a long time. Church diversity is not a little thing. It's, it's a worthy thing. It's, it's a good goal. But we need to recognize our city was a slave city for 180 years. And yes, that maybe feel like that was a long time ago. But so much of that influence still shapes even the geography, the layout of our city, overcoming the trauma of colonial stuff, of, of that slavery, of racism, of apartheid, which took root in our minds, our emotions, our spirits. 
And a little bit like Peter, it just shapes the way we see things. It shapes the way we think. It shapes what we think is clean and unclean. And this is true of all of us. And we all need healing. Why? Because this thing is such a defining influence on our city and on our nation and its tentacles run deep. And like Peter, we're going to have breakthroughs and regress. We're going to have visions and ecstasy and then we're going to mess up and we're going to have to explain ourselves over and over and get challenged and repeat and recycle. And we will need to give and receive lots of grace. And if, and if you just want this thing done then then dig deep into the gospel because the deeper we go into the gospel the more we will find the grace that we need you see what we want to do is recognize the problem assign responsibility and demand change the gospel does is it recognizes the issue recognizes what jesus has done in dying for us opens the door of repentance and forgiveness gives each of us a responsibility and empowers us to change the spirit we're in and move towards restitution and change and that's a different thing those steps that are equipped by the gospel lead you on a fundamentally different path and I promise you they will give us a different outcome. If you want this done and over, then get into the gospel and dive in deeper than ever before. You know what we'll do, number four, and we'll come back to this next week, is we'll force the world to find new categories. The old boxes, the old pigeonholes won't work anymore. The labels will have to be rethought and reinvented because something authentic and beautiful is being revealed and happening to the world. Let's pray together. Father God, we want to thank you for how insightful your word is, how it opens up our own hearts to us. How we see in the lives of others things that we ourselves still have to process. We thank you for the gospel. Thank you that when the gospel gets spoken, talked, and lived out, it creates something new. And we ask, Lord, starting from the inside out, that you would create something new in us. Be with us as we have courageous conversations. Walk with us as we seek to overcome the things that would tie us down. Liberate us as your church to be a demonstration. And, and, and be to us, Lord, an answer to the promise, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow and be careful to keep all my laws. Lord, will you not cause us to be a prophetic demonstration of all that you want to be? 
And Lord, as we stay in this conversation, as we keep going, keep learning, keep working, keep repenting, keep forgiving, keep making restitution, keep seeking reconciliation. As we keep on in the gospel, will you not make something brand new be birthed among us in Jesus' name. Amen.